Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the questions, what is the point of my wealth, and what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? Your host, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, director of private wealth design at Monument, will tap into their over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management to help you answer these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram at Monument Wealth and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Welcome, everybody, to episode two of the Off the Wall podcast. I'm Dave Armstrong, and I'm joined with Jessica Gibbs. Hey, Dave. And today we have one of our colleagues, Aaron Hay, who is a private wealth advisor and a portfolio manager at Monument. And we are just going to have an open conversation about the wall of worry. And what's interesting to me, Jessica, and I think you too, because we've talked about this a couple of times, is we always hear this term wall of worry, right? It gets thrown around on the news, but I don't know if it's really clear to everyone what that actually means. So I'm excited to have Aaron come on and talk more about what it is and put it into the context of everything that we're seeing right now. Obviously, the two of you are CFAs and I am not. So as the non-CFA in the room, I think I get this question of like, now that 2020 is thankfully behind us, it's kind of like, what the heck happened? The market was crazy despite all of the events that happened in 2020. The market still went up and what the heck happened? And so that's why I'm really curious to hear the two of you, your take on this, because I think wall of worry is a really relevant way to explain what did happen. Yes. And so with that, Aaron, before I formally introduce you, I will just quick set the scene for context a little bit about last year, because 2020 was pretty extraordinary for a couple of different reasons. And the, the market roller coaster was certainly no exception. So a quick recap, in February and March of 2020, we saw these massive losses in the stock market while the country was entering this lockdown. And if we just look at the first quarter of 2020, the S&P fell 24% from January 1st to March 31st. And that wasn't great, but it feels comprehensible in the moment. It just made sense. And the other interesting part about that section of the market was that from January until about mid-February, we actually saw the market go up. So even though it fell 24% from January 1st, it feels like it fell even more because we were coming off that February high. And Jessica, I know you remember that too, because we were talking on the phone all the time. If you look now at the full year, January 1st through December 31st, the S&P 500 closed up over 13%. So if you were Rip Van Winkle and went to sleep on January 1st and woke up on December 31st and didn't experience anything with the market or the economy or society, you would have been like, oh, hey, 13%, great, not bad. But if you look at the performance from March 20th, which was the market low point, through the end of the year, the S&P rebounded off that market low 65%. And that's just an incredible recovery in such a short period of time. It's wild, right? I mean, you put yourself back in the mindset of February, March. It was scary times. No one knew what was going to happen. And so to see in retrospect that 65% gain is just incredible. And that's where I think, okay, COVID hits, the economy shuts down, 
the country goes into lockdown, it's understandable, right, that the market is going to decline. But I think trying to understand why did it go back up in the face of everything else that happened, COVID infections skyrocketing, COVID deaths skyrocketing, the biggest protest movement in U.S. history, a huge social reckoning over civil rights in the, during the summer, and then uncertainty surrounding what the economy was going to do. And, and, oh, yeah, a highly contentious presidential election on top of that. I mean, 2020 feels like <laughs> such a mouthful of things to happen in 2020. And the market to go up despite of that is kind of wild. Yeah, I think if 2020 was a Yelp review, it would definitely only get one star and a lot of thumbs down for sure. <laughs> so that's a great intro for Aaron. So let's have you jump in here and from your perspective, you know, tell us what happened. How do you go about explaining this market increase despite all of the news headlines that we just talked about? For sure. Dave, Jessica, thanks again for having me. Broadcasting live here from my closet in my apartment, get the best sound hopefully. So good to talk to you guys today. Wall of worry. We've written about this before. We've got some blog posts on the Monument website, but I think it is a really interesting open-ended topic to talk about. And I think it'd be helpful to sort of have a starting point definition, sort of an informal definition of what the wall of worry is. So I just pulled up Google just to see what would be a good one sentence explanation from a site like Investopedia. And I think this is the best, best one I found so far. So all the wall of worry is, it's a market uptrend that occurs when there's significant uncertainty about its sustainability. So Jessica, you talked about 2020. Obviously we had COVID. We had protests in the summer. We had the presidential election. We had COVID round two. And despite all that, We've had what is quite possibly the strongest bull market we've ever seen. Not only are you seeing participation from the stock market, you're starting to get this sort of emergent asset class of cryptocurrencies as well, which has really started to break out here. And it just goes back to the uncertainty surrounding the sustainability of a trend. That's all it is. In retrospect, it's kind of easy to talk about. Obviously, when it's happening, it's very difficult to see where you're going. But I think what this all boils down to is a couple of things. The biggest is capital markets, specifically the stock market, are a forward-looking mechanism. They're going to price in information about the future. So while we were having increasing cases, hospitalizations, deaths, protests, contentious riots, you had the capital riot, you had all of this, the market seemed to be pricing into the future. What's going to happen once the vast majority of the population has been vaccinated, once we've gotten through the presidential election, once people start to travel again. And I think our listeners, I think you guys have heard this other term that's, I would say, goes right alongside the wall of worry, which is the stock market is not the economy, right? Dave, I'm sure you've heard that before. You've heard people say, oh my gosh, how can stocks be doing so great? How can Wall Street be doing so great when Main Street's doing so terribly? And it's true. And there's all kinds of graphs and data out there that show that the economy and the stock market are not correlated closely at all. But I'd also remind people, and I was doing some reading this morning, 
you know, one of my favorite authors, his name is Jared Dillian. You guys have probably heard me reference him. The Daily Dirt Nap. The Daily Dirt Nap. So shout out to Jared. But he had a, a really good Bloomberg op-ed out this morning reminding people, hey, remember back in 2020 when the stock market was screaming upward, but the economy was in the can? That cuts both ways. So something that's going to be very interesting to see is this spring and summer, once the vaccination rollout is well underway, it already is, but once more people are getting vaccinated, once we start to see more traditional reopenings, when people start going to concerts, sporting events, you name it, conceivably, the economy could start roaring in the back half of the year. We overshoot a GDP estimate. I think people are calling for the economy to expand 5 6%, possibly higher. How about this? You get a really strong economy, and then the stock market remains in bear market territory. I don't know that people can really comprehend that. They can't really comprehend how that would work, but I would say... A simple way of looking at it is the stock market's a forward-looking mechanism. We priced in all the good news already. And if the economy starts to roar and people sell off, it's classic buy the rumor, sell the news. I don't know that's going to happen. I think right now in terms of a setup for something that could happen that people might not be prepared for, I think that's a plausible scenario. Right. That Bloomberg opinion piece is fantastic. I read it this morning. It's called Investors Are Too Exuberant, and it's in uh, Bloomberg Opinion. It can be found online. The case that he was saying, basically the headline was, the bullish case for stocks is always the most compelling at market tops, which is an interesting connection to a wall of worry because those two things are in direct contrast with each other. But that comes back to a lot of what we tell people too, which is, I don't know if it's necessary to try to time the market or figure out, should I be bullish now? Should I not be bullish right now? Because if you allow yourself to have the flexibility in an investment strategy, you can wait for good opportunities with your investments. If you are maintaining a level of cash, that gives you the flexibility to do that. And when people talk about cash, and we connect that with opportunities and flexibility, one of the responses is generally, well, my cash is earning 0%. Well, in the context of the wall of worry and people worrying, or should we be worrying about the exuberance in the market, investors can take a lot of that out of the equation by just saying, if I've got enough cash for the next 12 to 18 months that do not require me to do anything, that equates to flexibility. And when you have that sort of flexibility, a 0% interest rate on your cash could actually be an extraordinary return if you look at it from that perspective of the flexibility that gives you. I agree. I think something to parse out here is over the long term, cash is a terrible asset class. I think people get that. From a return perspective. From a return perspective. And even if you do start eking out returns, if you get T-bills and short-term treasuries, start to creep up at some point, you're still likely going to lose out in real terms, right? Inflation is going to eat away the value of your cash. So over intermediate and longer time periods, cash is a terrible investment. But Dave, to your point, over time frame, 6, 12, you know, even 18 months out, cash is, it's cliche, but cash is king. Cash gives you the ultimate optionality to do a lot of things. And to your point, Dave, cash gives you the ability, at least it should, to sleep well at night. Right as we're recording this podcast, I had someone that emailed me and is asking 
What are your guys' thoughts for the rest of the week? I know this person. I know what's in their head. I know they're looking at the markets every single day. And not only that, I had another friend who texted me this morning at like 5.45 in the morning. And I can tell you this friend, he wasn't just starting out his day. He was actually coming to the end of his day because he tends to stay up all night. And this guy is really focused on the cryptocurrency market, which we don't even really need to get in here. But my point being is if you've got enough cash, it should afford you the ability, the luxury to not have to track the markets tick for tick every day because it has to be exhausting to do that. And at a certain point, you're going to get so mentally exhausted that it's conceivable that it's going to cause you to abandon your strategy at the worst possible time. Yeah. Or conversely, and Jessica, jump in here because you spend a lot of time talking to clients in the context of their plan and the portfolios that we have built for them based on that plan. And we see the cash and the flexibility, but you also talk to clients about their emotions when they call up and we're saying, hey, it's March and just want to catch up with you. And you can hear the, the fear in their voices, but that cash, that flexibility is actually a nice shock absorber, an emotional shock absorber, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you put yourself in the place of you're retired or you're just entering retirement and all of a sudden the market tanks, that's literally like the worst nightmare that people write articles about. It's a really scary time because you know that this pot of money that you spent your life working really hard to build, this is it. This is what's going to sustain you for the rest of your lifetime. This is what's going to help you cover future medical expenses that you don't know. All these what ifs, but this is it. You're not working anymore. You need this money. And it can be a really scary time to think about, should I be taking actions right now that are going to protect this? Like, do I need to be doing anything? And when ultimate advice is really no, just kind of stay the course. For some people that may feel like that's an unsatisfactory answer. But really, I think what you said at the top about looking at the 2020 market in retrospect, right? If you had said in the beginning of March, you're like, this is just going to keep going south. This is going to be horrible. I'm going to sell everything because I just want to be in a defensive position and make sure I at least retain what I have now. You would have lost out on all those gains. So I really hear what Aaron is saying here about keep your long-term focus, not keeping the day-to-day or the week-to-week market focus. My question for the two of you listening to this is, I hear what you're saying. Have cash. It's going to allow you to weather the storm. It's going to allow you to potentially take advantage of if there's a market low where you can invest low, as the saying goes, and hopefully realize more gain if you have those means. What should investors be doing right now that um, the market has recovered and Maybe there isn't those obvious strategic buying opportunities right now. And I definitely want Aaron to chime in on this too, but what people should be doing right now has to be decided in the context of, we have no idea what the market is going to do. And anyone who claims that they do is either a charlatan or a fool. So with that, people have to be building their plans using some long-range expectations and map out their need for cash. In other words, we like to always ask the question, what's the money for? 
And for people who are retired, the money is for living. And for people who are still in their earning stages, the money is for flexibility for a number of different scenarios. I'll just make one up. You lose your job. You want to have the flexibility of being able to live out of that cash so that you don't have to sell securities because for a good portion of our client base, that is going to be taxable accounts, especially for the younger people who can't tap into their tax advantage savings. So we have to create plans that are forward-looking and make assumptions about the long-term and factor in the flexibility of cash. Now, what you were talking about before was sequence of returns risk. And if somebody has the flexibility to not have to take action in their portfolio on March 20th because they just lost their job and they don't know when they will be employed again, they've got 12 months of cash to be able to figure that all out before they have to start selling. So let's go back to the actual what happened March 20th. The S&P returned 65% off that bottom. If you were living out of your cash, which was generating zero anyway, you didn't have to worry about liquidating on March 21st. You could conceivably still be living out of that cash. The date of this recording is the 23rd of February, 2021. So if you had 12 months of cash, you could conceivably still be living out of that and have been enjoying those market returns. So I think the answer to that, and I want to hear Aaron's answer, I think the answer to that is you have to make those decisions in the context of the plan and answering the question, what's the money for? Not a very incredibly insightful response about what the market is going to do, but I still maintain that what the market is going to do is a very difficult exercise and probably not one that is worth anybody's time, especially somebody who is asking about what are we looking at for the rest of the week? I mean, Aaron, I was joking with you before about the answer to that question is what do I think is going to happen for the rest of the week? Well, I think Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday is going to come. That's what I think. Yeah. Of course, there are really smart people out there that have a good skill set in the quote unquote, the technical analysis part of the market that I would say more often than not can probably tell you the likelihood, the probability of where the market goes over short time frames. But Dave, to your point, that's a crapshoot. It really is. And it's not what we do. My answer to this, what should investors do? It's two-pronged here. The first of which is this. Most investors are going to have a pretty good allocation to equities. That's just a fact. And along with that, people need to prepare themselves to be in a sustained drawdown. And by that, I mean going from top to bottom, preparing for a wild ride. Now, it's our job as portfolio managers through the way we manage money to get clients into stocks or more broadly parts of the stock market that are either going up the fastest or the flip side of that is going down the slowest. But by doing that, especially that second part, it by no means insulates you from a drawdown. Investors need to be prepared to open their accounts and see, wow, I've lost in some cases a lot of money, at least on paper. There's a reason for that is if you have an investment time horizon that goes out 5, 10, 15, oftentimes I'd say for a lot of our clients, they've got dynastic time periods, meaning this money is going to outlive not only to them and their children, but it's hoping to fund generations far down the line. Because I'll say this, 
I'm not hoping and praying we get events like COVID back in the first quarter of 2020. I think that's stupid. I think what the observation there is, though, without these really sharp, unexpected, risky events, risk-off events in the stock market, you're not going to be able to eke out a stock-like return. This is classic. Without any risk, you don't get return. So just tying this back again is clients need to be sustained, need to be prepared for drawdowns. There's also a corollary to this. You're in drawdowns. Great. How do you prevent yourself from abandoning ship during a drawdown? The best way to do that, and I'm not saying it's easy, but this is what people really need to internalize. Charlie Bellolo has said this a lot. He's a great Twitter follow, by the way. Um, I don't have his handle. I think you can just search him on Twitter. B-I-L-E-L-L-O is his last name. But he's got a version of a Peter Lynch quote, which says the following, know what you own and why you own it. I can tell people, hey, this is why we own high quality dividend paying stocks. This is why we have models that implement a momentum overlay. This is why we oftentimes pair these two strategies together and, and things like that. The point of this is if you don't know what you're in and you really can't see under the hood or you just don't understand something, there's a higher probability that at the worst possible time frame, you're going to abandon ship. I'm going to say personal experience, I would like to call myself personally, and this is speaking outside of Monument, right? This is when you hear people say, what are you doing in your PA? That's your personal account. What are your personal thoughts on this? How you're allocating your own money? I would like to fancy myself as a very risk tolerant individual with a very long time frame. But you look at something like cryptocurrencies and the crypto market, Bitcoin, the altcoins, that whole ecosystem. I don't get involved there. I think there's really good returns to be had, but it doesn't suit my personality. And I still cannot fully wrap my head around the asset class, the individual coins in the space. And that's going to preclude me from really getting involved there because I know myself. If I can't understand something, or at least if you're looking at it on a continuum, one being I couldn't spell what I'm trying to invest in. And 10 is, oh, by the way, I invented this. If I can get myself to about six or seven on that scale of knowing what's going on, that's going to get me pretty close to investing. I'm still not quite there yet with a lot of these things like cryptocurrencies. Here's another hot asset class right now, SPACs, right? Special purpose acquisition companies. There's a lot of things right now that investors are wanting to get involved with. They think they have an idea of what it is, but at the end of the day, when things go sideways and they really can't tell someone what their thesis is on why do you own GameStop? GameStop was the topic du jour three weeks ago, and you had people abandoning that stock that got up to close to 500 bucks. It's back down to 40 and change today. I think you saw a lot of people that panic sold because they truly, honestly, at the end of the day, didn't know what they owned and why they owned it. That's really sort of a long-winded way of saying what investors need to be prepared for, which is A, you need to be prepared to take drawdowns if you're going to have a lot of equity because without risk, there's not return. And as a corollary to that, you need to know what you own and why you own it. And I think that's our job as portfolio managers is to help clients not only get into the right allocations, but to also educate them along the way. Two things. One is we recently wrote a blog about SPACs, which explain at a very high level what a SPAC is. So you can go to the website and find that blog. And then Aaron, you recently wrote a very popular blog on the GameStop 
stock, which should also be something that people who are interested in that go back and read. It's been very popular. But the thing that you said about risk is really interesting too, because I read a great quote. I think it was Carl Richards. I can't remember if it was. Pretty sure it was. It said that once you account for everything that can go wrong, what's left over after you account for all of the, hey, this could happen, that could happen, blah, 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 blah. What's left over after that analysis is called risk. Risk is the thing that's left over after everything has been accounted for. Every possible scenario has been accounted for. And you can never get rid of risk because we never know what's going on. That's absolutely correct. I'm going to reference another piece that we wrote, which we wrote this right after the beginnings of the COVID drawdown last year about this time. In essence, this is what it was. It was, okay, you've got these bulge bracket shops. You got the JP Morgans, the Goldmans, the Morgan Stanleys, all of the big asset managers. They come out with their year-end pieces or their pieces to set up the, the upcoming year, what the risks, what the opportunities are, what could go right, what could go wrong, everything in between. Really smart people spending 18-hour days writing this. I would argue, I mean, these are the smartest people on Wall Street. I'm not saying this to disparage them at all. It is a tough job. It's oftentimes a thankless job. I don't know a lot of people that could do that. Having said that, we went back and we took, I think, about a half dozen or so of these different pieces. I pulled up the PDFs. I did a control F to go through and search for various keywords for risks. We looked up things like COVID probably wouldn't have been a good search word, but pandemic, lockdown, virus. We couldn't find any mention of that in thousands of pages worth of these updates and these footnotes for risks. So Dave, your point of once you account for what all could go wrong, the residual there, that is truly risk. That's exactly what happens. And that's why the stock market should, at least in theory, if we get these type of events, should provide return for the long term. And I will wrap this up by giving our case for optimism. We're optimistic about returns in portfolios over the longer term. And, and we'll wrap up with that. But I wanted to bring Jessica back into the conversation too, because as you and I talk about risk from the portfolio perspective, there's also the risk that people are trying to account for, which is the risk of running out of money or the risk of not being able to afford the lifestyle I have, which is what Jessica is dealing with all the time with our clients through the planning side. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we're putting a button on this conversation of what should listeners be doing going forward, I think first and foremost is creating a plan. The saying I like personally is you don't know if you're going in the right direction until you've thought about the destination. So in my mind, what that means is you need to think about what are your goals? What does your endpoint look like? And for most people, that's going to be retirement or potentially selling a business. When might that happen? What choices might you be faced with? No one can predict the future. And so all the best you can do is try to make educated decisions, knowing what you know today and trying to account for the risks of tomorrow and the unknowns that might happen tomorrow. So that starts with creating a plan. And it at least is a way to help guide your path, know that you're moving in the right direction, know that you're making smart decisions that have a high likelihood of getting you where you want to go. That's the underpinning that then is going to ensure that your portfolio is crafted and customized in a way that's going to meet your objectives, not everyone else's. It's going to meet your objectives, your risk tolerance, your needs. 
it's just so important to have that customization and to know the answers for yourself because your plan, your path, your purpose for your wealth is different from everyone else's. And then otherwise, I think the things I'm hearing from you guys are at least going forward is is ensuring that you have that appropriate allocation to cash and monument. We always like to talk about having 12 to 18 months, having enough cash for the next 12 to 18 months worth of expenses. Put yourself in the shoes of, hey, it's February 2020 and the market is going down. You're going to be able to weather that downturn, which at that point, we didn't know how long it was going to last, but you could feel confident about doing that. And then lastly, I think I heard you guys talk about capitalizing on opportunities without taking undue risk. I really hear what you're saying, Erin, about understanding and feeling comfortable with how your investments are. It's something I always like to say to clients. If you don't understand this or you don't feel comfortable with this particular asset class or or this type of investment, don't do it. It doesn't matter what the returns may be or their income generation or these things. If you don't get it, if you don't feel comfortable with it, it's your money. It's not anyone else's. You worked really hard for it. Go with your gut and just stick with what you understand and what makes you comfortable. And there are plenty of ways to grow your wealth over the long term without taking unnecessarily high risk. Yeah. And we have that saying that we like to use all the time. And I think it was Warren Buffett who coined it. It's kind of a mantra, which is never risk what you have and need for something you don't have and don't need. And that's what people do when they start to reach with these investments. And if you bring it all back and you say, look, the goal of a portfolio should not be about more. In other words, your investment strategy shouldn't be, I just want more. Because that's just not in the context of what you need. So if a plan says you've got a very high probability of success of meeting all your goals and objectives, so long as your long-term rate of return in your portfolio is 7%, you may not need those investments to get you to 7%. So why have them? Or conversely, if there's an asset class that you're not comfortable with, true or false, can you get to that long-term annualized rate of return without that asset class? Chances are the answer is yes. So again, you don't need to reach. There is no reason to have certain asset classes in your portfolio if you do not need them. I keep coming back to the, what's the market going to do this week? And we all are in agreement. There's just no way of forecasting that. But the academic exercise is, hey, what's really being asked is, are you optimistic about the market? Well, three days is just too short of a time horizon to be optimistic about the market. But I do have some thoughts and I want to share them with the listeners. And Aaron, I want you to chime in if you think that there's something else here. But I've got a handful of things that have me optimistic about investing over a longer time horizon than just three days. First is, I think we are experiencing the beginning of an economic reopening. And there is a lot of good news over COVID getting better, vaccines getting out there. I don't know what's going to happen by Friday. I can look out 40 or 70, 90 days and say, geez, I think we're at the beginning of an economic reopening, and I don't think we're going to get a lot worse from here. Another thing is we have to remember, I read a report last week from JP Morgan that said that there's been over $30 trillion of stimulus already injected into the global economy. $30 trillion globally. And we have this 1.9 trillion of additional US fiscal stimulus that could be expected to come out anytime soon. And additionally, we have this ongoing 
easy monetary policy, which is definitely prioritizing lower unemployment and incentivizing a lot of home refinancing, especially over the last 30 days. So I think that is another sign of optimism. But another thing I think should give everybody some optimism here is that there is a lot of household liquidity out there. I don't know if we're at an all-time high, but it's certainly very, very high with the amount of cash reserves that people have. Another report I read said that cash reserves in the U.S. in savings accounts was over $11 trillion and close to $5 trillion in checking accounts. I mean, that is a lot of household liquidity. And then you combine that with what I think could be a potential wealth effect, which is always one of those things that everybody talks about. But we have seen a huge increase in net worth, not only from the rising asset values of homes, but also of stock market and mutual fund holdings, 401ks, pension plans. Those are in the tens of trillions of dollars of wealth effect, increasing wealth effect. And then in addition to that, I keep adding these things together, but we've seen a much lower consumption rate. Just gasoline savings alone and not driving is estimated to be somewhere about $100 billion of lower consumption by households in the US. And then we look at consumer balance sheets look pretty good with debt service ratios and disposable income, low delinquency rates for a lot of consumer loans. And then I think we are While I know that there's still a lot of pain out there, the labor market is healing with a declining unemployment rate. And don't underestimate this millennial group coming to an inflection in their lives as they're getting older, and their spending could be really impactful on the economy over the next five, 10 years, because as they create households and buy houses and things like that, that's going to be very accretive to the economy too. So just five or six things off the top of my head that really make me optimistic about investing over the longer term. And I'm saying like 12, 18, 24 months kind of long term. That's not really long term, but it's certainly a lot longer than what's going to happen in the next three days. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on those things, Aaron. I think you've painted a really good picture, especially for the domestic economy. I tend to agree with everything you just laid out there. And I think all of those line items that you've pointed out, whether it's there's been increased savings, consumption on things like energy has actually been down. And so that we could definitely see a surge in some fundamental consumption and demand here domestically. I think, you know, at the margin that could actually boost equities further. But I would caution people to, especially over the sort of intermediate timeframes, like over the next 6, 12, 18, even 24 months of having too much of a linear first order thinking, because if you recall, you know, going back to our earlier part of this conversation in 2020, people were wringing their fists while stocks were soaring and the economy was in the gutter. The stock market's not the economy. Well, it cuts both ways. And so Dave, I think you've painted a really bright picture for the economy in the back half of 2021 into 2022. Obviously, where capital markets go from there is anyone's guess. And I think a lot of that is something we really haven't talked about too much. We should talk about it more and people should be more aware of it is we've talked stocks here and we've even talked cryptocurrencies. The bond market is going to have a lot to say about how this all plays out, both from an economic, fundamental economic perspective, and then also how the stock market does as well. So I think that's going to be a good topic for another conversation in a future podcast. But I'll say this, you know, in terms of optimistic, being optimistic about long-term equity market returns, I actually am. I think a lot of people probably feel this way too. 
it's really hard to get short human ingenuity, <laughs> right? Of course, people made a lot of money shorting stocks, but over the long term, it's really hard to make money doing that. I just think the opportunity set, not only here domestically, but people forget, hey, there are other economies in the world outside of the US that are quite investable that could provide meaningful returns to an equity allocation. And we do that as well through some of our strategies. We are not solely focused on the domestic stock market, even though that's what everyone knows, that's what everyone loves, that's what everyone's used to. But the opportunity set outside the US is massive. You can look at that simply on the basis of demographics, right? What countries are having population explosions, population booms? I hate using these jargony phrases, but expanding their middle class, whatever that means. I think people kind of know instinctually what it is, but there's definitely opportunity sets outside the US. I'm definitely over the longer term, pretty bullish on equity markets. The casino analogy is very popular when you are talking about investing. And it's not because investing is gambling. It's because the invariability of returns in gambling or in a casino is very similar to the unpredictable nature of returns in investing. That's why the analogy works so well. And there's a lot of different games to play in a casino, and they all have variability and inconsistent returns and things like that. But when you look at the statistics of a casino, they're always in the favor of the casino and not the player. Whereas investing in the stock market or investing in any of the markets is exactly the opposite. There's a very high probability of positive returns the longer you increase time. And so as we kind of wrap up with that comment about optimism, and we'll let Jessica conclude and sign us off here, but I just feel optimistic about never shorting humans, our ingenuity and progress that we make. We just landed a rover on Mars, and it was only 100 years ago that the Wright brothers were taking off on a plane down in North Carolina. So I am optimistic about just the ingenuity and the progress of the human race and the world over the longer term. And I don't know what's going to happen by Friday, Aaron. I don't know how we answer that question, but I am optimistic about the future and anybody that is investing with a plan. So with that, I want to kick it back over to Jessica to kind of sign us off here. I think after 2020, all of us really could use that optimism. You guys are making me feel a lot better about things going forward. So thank you so much, Aaron, for coming on the pod. And we look forward to having you back to talk about more things in the future. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. This is Off the Wall, and we'll see you next time.